Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, I thank you for your grace to me in allowing me to be the pastor of such a wonderful assembly of people. God, I pray that you would bless each in this room that has played a part over the years in in making this place what it is and these people that has become who they are. And God, that you would continue to mold us and make us, that you would continue to give us courage and grace to step out in faith, to be your hands and feet in new, exciting, and oftentimes uncertain ways. God, we thank you and we praise your name for what you've done thus far, knowing that you have more in store for us God, I pray that today you would reveal yourself to us and that you would make us aware of your glorious presence both today and every day and that you would draw us forward in relationship as we pursue you with our lives. God, speak to us now through the truth of your word and help us to respond appropriately in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to ask you a question as we jump into the message this morning before we read Isaiah 6. And I want this to be the question that kind of guides our discussion this morning. Because truly, this, this question has, has bigger implications. This is a question that, that will influence and impact the way that we live our lives as Christians, as the people of God, as follower, uh, followers of Jesus. And the question is this. When you think of God, what do you envision? When you think of God, what do you envision? When you read the Bible, when, when, when you're praying to God Almighty, when, when you think of Jesus, when you think of the Holy Spirit, when you think of the Father, what is it that comes to your mind? There's a lot of different things, that a lot of different modes or, or, or personalities maybe that we would ascribe to God. Perhaps as you think of God and you see him in your mind's eye, maybe you wouldn't say it like this, but maybe in the way you treat God, you see God as a divine Santa Claus sitting on his seat at the heavenly mall. He's a kindly, jovial old man, complete with white beard, rosy cheeks, and kind eyes. And he sits at his seat in the center of this mall in the heavens, just waiting for us, his children, to come sit upon his lap and tell him what we want from him. He's just waiting eagerly for the good Christian boys and girls of the world to plop on his lap and tell him our deepest desires so that he can then give them to us. Or maybe, in your mind's eye, you view God in a little less rosy of a light. Perhaps you see God as this cosmic judge, sitting behind the court bench in the heavens. He's stern and serious, constantly watching and recording all of your actions, your misdeeds, and your attitudes. Not just for you, but for all of humankind. And he's carefully measuring out on the scale the right and the wrong you do. Just waiting for the wrong to tip too far. So that he can zap you. Bring about divine judgment and wrath for your sinfulness. 
Maybe you have a more earthy vision of Jesus, a la Talladega Nights. You see your Jesus in a Leonard Skinner t-shirt, long-haired, with sandals, wearing a flowing robe. He's kind of got this Zen master thing going on, and, and he, he's constantly just spitting out these pithy bits of wisdom, mind-blowing truths, if you will. He's giving a how-to tutorial for those that are willing to listen so that we can appropriate love one another and live our lives to the full. You know, we could spend all day going through diff different caricatures or, or, or pictures or images of God that pop into our mind when we think about God. Or the ways that others maybe see God in their hearts and minds. We see God as a father, which is an incredibly mixed bag in and of itself, dependent upon your relationship with your parents. We see God as a creator, shooting stars out of his fingers and creating worlds with a word. We see God as a doctor, healing diseases and doling out diagnoses. The list goes on and on and on. And ranges from the fairly accurate to the outright humorous and bordering on blasphemous. But might I submit to you that, that oftentimes our visions of God, there are pieces of truth, and, and possibly all of these, right? That there are pieces of truth in all of these different things that, that are all pictures and parts of who God are. And, and I, would, I would submit to you that any of those individual pictures are incomplete in and of themselves. But they're important. Because how we see God, how we envision God in our hearts and our minds is of incredible importance. If our perception of God is inaccurate, our actions in response to his calling for our lives and to the truth of his word will not be what it should be. If we have an inaccurate or an incomplete view of God, that will at times and often lead to inaccurate and incomplete responses to what God has asked. Interestingly enough, here we have in Isaiah chapter 6, as we continue our, our walk through Isaiah, we have Isaiah continuing with his theme of visions. A couple weeks ago we talked about Isaiah chapter 1, and it talks about the fact that all of the book of Isaiah is Isaiah's vision that he had throughout his time serving under various kings. And here we have another vision. Now, I know Nathan did seven last week, but we're going to jump back to six right now to talk about Isaiah's actual calling. And contextually for us to understand, it's important that chapters one through five are actually kind of an introduction and a preamble to what is actually coming in the book of Isaiah proper. This is actually the beginning of Isaiah's story here in chapter six. This is where it all begins for him. It's a flashback, if you will, of this is, this is how it all started for me. And this is where Isaiah, living his life, is minding his own business. And as he's minding his own business, probably as, as a nephew of the king, Isaiah has this vision of God. And it 
totally changes his world and the way he lives. He goes from being an, a, a comfortable prince in the palace to being a pain in the palace's hindquarters. But let's look at the vision and the commissioning of Isaiah here in Isaiah 6. And we're going to read through verse 9. It says this. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. Two, with two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, go and speak to this people. Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Here we have the beginning of Isaiah's vision. The rest of the book is, is predicated on this vision. And notice that Isaiah's first vision has nothing to do with the people of God. Isaiah's first vision has nothing to do with the sinfulness of humanity and their failure to fall in line with God's expectations. Isaiah's first vision, before he goes through anything else, is a vision of the holiness and all-surpassing greatness of God himself. Isaiah's calling as a prophet, his work in going to the nations and saying to them what God has put in his lips, starts not with the message, not with a realization of who they are or who he is, but with a recognition of who God is. It's the primary, one of the primary themes of the book of Isaiah. It's our first point for this morning, and it's quite simple. God is holy. God is holy. As I worked on this sermon, I had several iterations of this point. All of them with qualifications that followed God's holiness. Most of them involving our response to God, and that's appropriate. But I think for this morning, it's appropriate and important for us to sit in this thought. And I think it's something we miss all too often in our churches and in our devotional lives with God, we want to move beyond who God is to how it affects our lives. And that's important. But sometimes we need to stop and sit with the reality of who God is. We need to recognize the greatness of God. The fact that God is all-powerful, all-holy, 
and high above us, that we are not God, that we cannot attain to that level of holiness. We need to recognize the greatness of God. Too often that just becomes a secondary point in the midst of many points on our Sunday mornings. But this morning, I want us, I want us to reflect on that reality because that's where Isaiah's calling starts. Not with what Isaiah to do or where Isaiah is to go or who he's to impact or how he is to do it. Everything for Isaiah starts with an appropriate and accurate vision of who is God. And, and that vision is important for Isaiah's time, and it's equally important for our time. See, Isaiah is in the midst of a very shaky time, and, and we see that in verse 1. It's something that kind of lies under the surface, something that as we read in English in our time, we would read over it. But it, it starts with setting the scene in verse 1 of chapter 6. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, there are theories on where Isaiah was and what's going on, and, and I don't know, but one of the theories is that Isaiah is in the temple praying. And the reason that Isaiah is praying is because Isaiah is to some degree panicking. Because the king is dead. Long live the king. Now, we don't deal with that anymore with the quote-unquote peaceful transition of power. Even when it's not peaceful, it's still relatively peaceful. But you can look throughout the Bible and see, when one king died... There were usually five or six that wanted to take their place, right? And, and when one king died, that meant the coming of another leader, and it meant uncertainty. And so what's certain among scholars is that, that Isaiah is living in a time of great uncertainty. And though our lives and our world may shake with the uncertainty and the spiritual infidelity of the age, God is still seated on his throne. That's what we see in the vision of Isaiah. Here we have again the king Uzziah has died. King Uzziah had reigned for 50 years as the king. That is a long time of stability for a nation. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know the actual data on this, but... 50 years of reigning is well beyond the average lifespan of the person at that time. Now you can look through all the kings. There aren't a lot of them that reigned for that long. And as King Uzziah reigned, he brought on a time of unprecedented prosperity and, and, and helped restore the prominence of the kingdom of Judah. 2 Chronicles 26 tells us that King Uzziah was a good king. That for the most part, he was faithful to God. But that his success led him to believe his own press. That he tripped over his own pride. And as a result, allowed the people of God to wander away. Second Chronicles 27 tells us that as the king dies, that the people continued in their corrupt practices. We might... Harken back to the words of Charles Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. And it was the age of foolishness. You know what's funny about that to me? Is that Dickens wrote those words years and years and years ago. Right? And those words harken back to the words of Isaiah. But doesn't it feel like you could say that? about today. It was the best of times, but it was the worst of times. 
It was a time of unprecedented wisdom. But it was a time of unspeakable foolishness. It never ceases to surprise me and amaze me, and it shouldn't at this point in time, how often the truth of the text of Scripture can easily be prophetic of what we are facing right now. These words weren't written about us. Right? These, these words were written about a very particular time with very particular leaders. But, but this is a timeless issue. These are timeless issues that we continue to face today. It's the same problem in every age. Scripture continually predicts the human experience. The question for us is will we see the truth and respond in an appropriate manner? See, the problem in the text as we start is that Isaiah and the people of God at that point in time had, had split at least their faith. Sure, their faith was in their God. Their identity was in being the people of God. But the reason that there was panic and uncertainty in the streets at that time was because the king had died. had nothing to do with whether or not God was on his throne and everything to do with the political and civic leaders of the day and that they had died. See, we make a mistake when we split our faith. We put our faith in, in, sure, in God, but also in powerful and prominent people in our world to provide us with stability and success. Now, sure, it is right for us to respect those God allows and places in leadership. But we all must always look above and beyond them. Understanding that the people that are in power in our world are but pawns in the grand scheme of things. That there is a greater king, the king eternal, in whom we should consistently and without fail place our faith. Though rulers, powers, and authorities may come and go, almighty God, the king of creation, remains firmly seated on his throne forever. And Isaiah receives this glimpse from God of God himself. He sees the glory of God. He sees God seated on a throne in the temple and this flurry of activity that is surrounding God in that space as these angels fly around declaring the glory of God. Now, again, what does that look like in your mind? I know, I know we, we think about angels, right? And we think of like really, really, really brightly glowing, beautiful people. And we're like, man, I would love to see or be an angel. I consistently come back to the fact that with a few exceptions, when, when angels show up, it is not a party time. Everybody is terrified. I mean, how many times do we have angels coming on the scene and the angels, the first thing out of their mouth has to be, don't be afraid. Because the next thing we read is, everybody's terrified. It makes sense when we read Isaiah 6, right? Here we've got seraphim. It, it specifies what kind of angels are flying around. These, these are seraphim as opposed to cherubim, which come later. These are seraphim. And the word seraphim means, literally translated, the burning ones. People of fire, beings of fire and light. They don't fit our pretty picture of bright, glowing, pretty people. 
right? They have six wings, not two wings, right? Like when we talk about, oh, I hope grandma got it. Grandma, first of all, grandma and grandpa never got their wings. They're still people in heaven, right? Hate to ruin your day there, but theologically, we don't become angels. We stay as people. We're just glorified people. Angels are angels. People are people, right? We don't get wings. That doesn't mean we can't fly. We just don't get wings. And as you read Isaiah 6, I don't know that you want them, right? We think of like nice, flowing, big wings, that are, are symmetrically placed, they make sense to us. Not these things. They have six wings, right? And only one set is used for flying. So this being, this glowing being of fire, is flying. And they are covering their feet with one set of wings, and they're covering their face with the other set, set of wings, all while blazing on fire. And while they're doing it, they're shouting. We like to think of this as singing, and we're going to put a pin in that. But we like to think of them as singing. But it says, that it doesn't say that. It says they're calling to one another. And their calling is so loud that the very foundations of the temple are shaking. So these beings of light are calling out in worship, and smoke is filling the temple. It kind of feels like the best blended worship you've ever had in your life. Right? I mean, if I was really going to advocate for contemporary worship, this would be my passage. Why? Because there's smoke, and there's lights, and there's loud sounds. And a version of the most ancient hymn of all times, but it's not our version that's in our hymnal. What's interesting to me is that here are these creatures of pure light covering their face in humility, but shading themselves from the light of God's glory. Like, how much brighter does God have to be that a creature of light is like, oh, my eyes. Seriously. Like, these are amazing creatures, but God is that much greater. These angelic beings fly around the throne of God, declaring consistently, the very truth that Isaiah is seeing, that God is the very definition of holy. Holy, holy, holy. Now, you know what's interesting? I, I, I think this is another instance where those that complain about repetitive worship songs, you have to take that one up with the Lord. Because this is an abbreviated version of our hymn, is it not? I am not, listen, I, I know it's funny. I'm not being flippant, and I'm really not trying to be hostile. I'm just telling you that these are infinite beings. Do you think that the issue was they couldn't think of enough words? No, I, I don't think that's it at all. I think they understood something that we lose sometimes. You know, a lot of times I think that we want the deep, thick theological worship songs, and I want them too because it's important. It helps us remember theology. But sometimes the point of the worship song is us, that we remember and recognize and remember truth. More often than not, and even in those songs, you know what the point of a worship song is? To declare the holiness and glory of God. It is not about you. 
It's not about what I like. It's not about what I like. It is about who God is and drawing attention to that greatness. And there's going to have to be a lot of different strokes for different folks to bring that attention. But ultimately, it is a declaration of this truth that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the entirety of the earth should be full of his glory. May we not get it twisted, brothers and sisters. It all comes back to that. God is infinitely holy. He is worthy of all the glory and all the praise from all of creation. Something else we must notice and recognize in this text is is the scope of this holiness. That God cannot be contained. It's interesting that God is in, seen in the temple. And again, there's, there's disagreement. Is, is God in the heavenly temple of which the earthly temple is just a shadow? Or is, is Isaiah actually having a vision in the temple that he's the earthly temple and God is in it? I really think it's inconsequential. The, the truth is that whatever the temple and wherever it is, God is too big for it. Which is important for us. I mean, Isaiah is, is making a point. The whole earth is full of, the, of his glory, as the angels sing in verse 3. And sometimes I think our, our churches, our temples, ride a very fine line between being a place of worship and a prison. Now, why do I say that? I'm not talking about you and I. I'm still just talking about God. Sometimes we, we make the mistake of thinking that God can be contained inside these walls. I hear it all the time. Well, i got to go to church because I've got to meet with God. And that's true. We do that here. I don't mean to demean that. That's true. But you realize that God is not just in here, right? That God is with you wherever you go. That these walls cannot contain Almighty God. No temple can. Now, for you and I, we don't think about that in those, those means. Now, now, we talk that way sometimes, but, and we get that honestly from history. You see, that was the point of building a temple historically. They would build a temple, and they would build an incredibly beautiful, ornate building, and they would call it the house of God. And then they would offer sacrifices, and the whole point of offering sacrifices on the regular and, and to do them in excess was to offer God all that God would need so that they could contain their God. And then once the God came to live with them, they would slap that God's name and symbols on that temple, believing that by putting the name of their God on their temple, the God would be beholden to the people who built that temple. They, they believed that the relationship was truly reciprocal. You understand that it's not, right? That, that what, even what we do for God is ultimately for God, but it is God has given that to us to remind us of him. God needs nothing from us, yet he still condescends to meet with us. And we make a mistake when we think that the great God of the universe is just our God. Now, I'm, I am not being polytheistic here. I'm not saying that all religion, religions are the same. I'm not at all saying that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father but by me. There is one God in triune form, 
period, end of discussion. No other way to heaven but Jesus. Believe that. I believe that. But our view of God is always going to be narrow. It's never going to be as big as God is. And our attempts to contain God and to limit God to our little sphere, to our little group of people, is wrong. See, we make this same mistake. While we might not say it, we act as if God is under house arrest in our churches. We place his name on the building. We brand it with the sign of his son. And we act as if we have a captive audience in that place. Might I submit to you that it is bad theology in at least three ways. First, it puts us in the seat of power and makes God beholden to and dependent upon us. Which gets the relationship completely backwards, doesn't it? Second, it gives us a very small view of the power and presence of God. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. He is all-powerful, all-present, and all-seeing wherever we go. There is nowhere on the earth, in heaven or in hell, that we can escape from the presence of God. Third, gives us the illusion of proprietary ownership of God. He is our God, but not their God. This is wrong. He is God, period, full stop. And we are his. He belongs to no one and is available to and to be shared with all. Our God is holy. Our God is completely other High and far above us. He is worthy of worship and praise and, yes, obedience and faithfulness. And our vision of God will determine how we then respond to him. Our vision of God will determine how we respond to him. If we believe that God is there just waiting for our whims and our desires, that will impact how we approach God. If we believe that God is just waiting to strike when we do wrong, that will impact how we approach God. Note the angelic response to God in the text, though. Their response is worship. Simple and clear worship. They consistently declare God's holiness. They sing holy, holy, holy. You know, we see this scene again in Revelation 4. In Revelation 4, as, as we come to the end of the age, we see that day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What's great is that we're invited to sing as the elders throw their crowns at the foot of the Holy One. The proper response to God's holiness, first and foremost, should be reverent awe and worship. I want to invite the band up right quick. And we're going to pause 
at this moment, and we're going to join the angels in their song that they sing consistently. And we hope that they're not angry at us for changing the words and adding to them with our contemporary song this morning. Let's stand together as we sing this song of worship. And I want us to reflect on the holiness of God, the greatness of God, and how worthy he is of our worship.
So the response of the angels is to declare the holiness of God. But note that Isaiah's response is a little bit different. Isaiah's response is, is not immediately worship, but we might say worry. It's despair. Recognition of the incomparable holiness of God reveals our uncleanness and our need for repentance. Verse 5, we see that Isaiah is shattered by the reality of his own sin in light of God's holiness. He sees his brokenness and his unworthiness. And he recognizes that he's not alone, that it's all of humanity that is a total hot mess. We can relate to that, can't we? I mean, I, I know I can relate to that in my own life, but surely I can look out and, and we can say, we can look at the news, we can look at the media, we can look at all that's going on around us. It's one of those things that I find I, is a, a resonating thing for me that I keep coming back to. The world is a hot, nasty mess. And we keep saying that it's getting worse and worse, but is it really? Or are we just seeing it more? I mean, we're, we're no different than Rome which really was no different than Assyria, which was really no different than Babylon. This is the problem. Sin, sin is sin is sin is sin, and we are infinitely creative in the ways that we find to fail and mess up God's created order. And Isaiah sees it. In recognition of the holiness of God and the declaration of the, the angels, Isaiah is totally wrecked. We see in verse 5, he says, Woe to me, I cried. What does Isaiah mean by woe? That's not a word we use very often, right? I see there's probably three, at least three different ways that this can go. Is he like, whoa, hold up. I do not belong here. I don't know how I got here, but this is not where I belong. It's like the person that walks into the church, and I have this all the time, that comes in and is like, well, don't get too close. God might strike me. Ironically, that's the only person coming into church on Sunday morning that actually understands what's happening. And we come in thinking, oh, I own the place. Like, why hasn't someone greeted me and given me a cookie or something? As if something is owed to us. When we come into the church, we shouldn't come into the presence of God thinking about what God owns, owes us because of what we've given him. Our, we should come to the altar, to the throne of God. Whether, whether it be reading our Bibles at home or coming to the church, we should come with humility. With an understanding of our brokenness. Praying that God would reveal himself to us and would reveal the truth of our brokenness. Every Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning, I wake up at about 6 o'clock. Not because my alarm is set for 6. It's not. That's an ungodly hour. But for some reason, every Sunday morning at 6 o'clock, I wake up and it's one of these. Oh my gosh, I have to preach again. Now, it's not because I don't love preaching. I do. It's not because I don't believe I have some modicum of ability to do it. I don't think I'm the best, but I'm good enough. Thank you, I appreciate that. But I am, every Sunday, I lay in my bed for a solid hour and a half with adrenaline coursing through my body, terrified at the proposition of standing before you and sharing the truth. 
terrified. Every Sunday, it, it's going to kill me one of these days. I'm convinced of it. Robin consistently tells me, you're not having a heart attack. Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> one of these days, you're going to say I'm not, and I am. And it's because of this. It's one of those woes. Like, whoa. I don't belong here. I'm not worthy. Maybe Isaiah's woe is a little bit different. Wait, maybe Isaiah's woe is, whoa, I'm terrified and traumatized. What did I just see? What is going on in front of me? Just outright fear, which makes sense, right? There are six winged things that are on fire flying around. And that's not even the scariest thing in the room. Or is it perhaps the sound of weeping? Oh, I am saddened by how sinful I am. And how, by how greatly I have failed to see who God is and how significantly I have failed him. Probably a little bit of all three, isn't it? Isaiah's lamentation of his unworthiness demonstrates, though, for us his repentant heart. He recognizes his sin. And the revelation of our sinfulness is in light of God's holiness, should incite us to humble repentance. But God doesn't leave him there. God doesn't leave him there. That's the great thing. God, God is holy, and God could sit in his holiness and be like, yeah, Isaiah, you are a terrible person. You are awful. You're not good at this thing, this life thing. You're not very good. Anyone ever feel like that? I'm not very good at this whole life thing. I'll say it. Sometimes I think I'm, in all areas of life, I feel like I'm just guessing and that I'm not very good at the guessing. But God doesn't leave Isaiah there. And this whole thing is about Isaiah's calling. And we might stop here and say, well, God has seen Isaiah, and Isaiah has recognized his worthlessness, so God needs to move on and find someone else. But that's not where God stops. Isaiah is sitting there, and God equips Isaiah. Before God calls Isaiah, God makes Isaiah ready for service. God equips those that he calls. See, that's the thing about us serving God and us worshiping God is it's not about our worthiness but the worthiness of God. It's not about what we say to God and about God but what about what God does in and through us. God doesn't drive Isaiah out of his presence because of his unworthiness. Rather, in light of Isaiah's declaration, God provides atonement for Isaiah's sins. He makes it right. Notice that one of the seraphim grabs a live coal from the altar with tongs and comes and takes it with his hand and touches Isaiah's mouth and says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now that may be strange for us. Why didn't it touch Isaiah's heart? Well, Isaiah's called to be a prophet. So God purifies his mouth. I have a whole bunch of tangential thoughts about this. You know, it would be great if God purified our hearts, but there are many of us who have believed in Jesus in our heart but still talk trash with our mouth. I'm not talking about dirty words. I'm talking about the way we treat and talk to other people. 
We struggle with what Isaiah is going to be called to do is to speak very difficult and harsh truths, but he's called to do it in love. Isn't that the, the whole overarching truth of Scripture, that we are to speak the truth in love? God purifies him. God makes his sin, removes the stain of his sin, and, and makes him right with God. And this whole scene paints a picture of worship in the temple. And it serves as a reminder that it isn't the blood of animals that makes the altar of God holy and empowers salvation. Rather, it is the power and presence of our holy God that makes his grace available. All of the symbols and signs, those are for us to to be able to grasp them and, and to understand the weight of it all. But it is ultimately God's holiness that makes us holy. It is God's declaration that that puts us on the path of sanctification and makes us worthy of service. And God is still in the business of making people worthy by the power of his perfect holiness and grace. It is the actions of God, not the quality of the person, that make one qualified to receive and live out the calling that God places before them. And God barely has touched the coals to Isaiah's mouth when he says, now, we got to send someone, so who are we going to send, and who's going to go for us? And Isaiah goes, I'll go. Here am I, send me. you got to wonder, did Isaiah get done saying that and think, I might should have asked a few questions first. I mean, if he didn't at this point, he certainly did after God gave him the message, right? We don't got time to jump into that today, but the message is not awesome. Like, there's a whole lot of woe in Isaiah's message. Isaiah did what we like to do around here at First Baptist Church. Write the check and then hope we can cash it. I can relate to that. I hear it all the time. People saying, you know what, I, would, I wish I could do that. I just don't feel like I'm equipped. Oh, I wish I could do that. I'm just not good enough. I wish I could do that. I just don't. You know what, I found something this week as I was looking through my office in preparation for this message. This right here, this one little yellow sheet, is the first message I ever preached in my life. Like, that's it. <laughs> and I don't, I don't remember preaching it, but I look at the notes today and I'm like, oh, sweet Jesus, I can't believe someone put you up in front of people with that. I mean, I don't remember. It felt like back in the day when I preached it, it felt like I preached for forever, right? It felt like a long time. But I'm looking at this right now, and I couldn't make this last five minutes today. And I'm good at making things last a little while. Yeah, thank you. Doors are there and there. Come at me. What's my point, though, in bringing this up? Was I ready when I did this? Absolutely not. I was terrified. Had no idea what I was doing. Was I qualified? Absolutely not. Had no idea what I was doing. Jumped up, supposed to speak for 30 minutes. I'm pretty sure it lasted eight. But was it about me in the first place? It wasn't then, and it isn't now. You know what it's about? It's about the holy God that called me. And sometimes all God needs, maybe God even more. Remember, Jesus said that that unless we are like children, 
Sometimes we need that child. I, not sometimes. We need that childlike faith. Because it's a child that will run headlong into it and say, I want to do that. Without any knowledge as to whether or not they can. They don't care. They're just excited for the opportunity. Brothers and sisters, that should be the same for you and I. And that's what's going on with Isaiah. Isaiah is just cranked that God would, would interact with him at all. And when God calls out, Isaiah is compelled to say, yep, whatever you want. Notice it doesn't even say, what is it going to do? Who will I send and who will go for us? There's no indication of what he's going to do once he goes. It's who's willing to go. Isaiah's like, me, I'll go. It's not a whole lot different than the New Testament, is it? Except for we're not given the option. Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Brothers and sisters, like Isaiah, we are called. And we may be woefully underprepared. We may be woefully underqualified. We may be woefully sinful and broken. But we serve the God that created us. And he can take broken things and do miraculous and amazing through things through those who are willing to say, God, I'm here and I'll go. So the question this morning again is this. When you think of God, what do you see? May we remember the all-surpassing greatness of the God that shakes the foundations of the universe. May we remember that whatever comes into our lives and whatever woes we're facing, that God remains on his throne. May we remember that even in our sinfulness, God can make us worthy for service. And in light of that view of the great God, the call still goes out today. Who will I send? And who will go for us? The question this morning, in light of God's holiness and greatness, are you willing to stand and say, God, here I am. Send me. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We recognize, God, that you are worthy of all the honor, glory, and praise that you have given oh so much for us and that you continue to call us by your grace and that you continue to work to make us holy through the work of your hands. God, as we come to the communion table this morning, we remember that ultimately our holiness, our sanctification, our atonement comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. May we remember that sacrifice this morning. May we celebrate together. And may we walk in obedience to your calling this day and every day. In Jesus' name.